Mark chapter 1 then, and if you would, I'd invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word if you are able. Mark chapter 1, and I will be reading verses 1 through 8. Hear now the Word of the Lord. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, what we just read are the very first words written by the disciples of Christ. There's a possibility that Paul wrote his letter to the church of Galatia a few years in advance of this, but uh, in any case, these are at least the very first words that we have on the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You will not find anything earlier than what has just been Read. And before even coming to this passage, we know at least two things about Jesus. We know one, that he is, in fact, a historical figure. That's not debated. Uh, everyone agrees there was this man named Jesus who lived and walked the earth two millennia ago. Uh, but then secondly, we also know that now almost a third of the world's population identifies with this individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And we have to ask ourselves as we come to the Gospels, as we, even as Christians, we need to remind ourselves and and wonder, and of course, if you're not a believer, you have to ask, what sort of belief would get us from the first century, where there's just a hundred or so followers of Christ, to where we are today? And the answer is, is given to us here right in the opening line of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in these words, we actually have the central claim of the Christian faith. The very first claim of the New Testament is the central one. So Mark, in his account, he doesn't waste any time. He just comes right out at the very beginning and says, here's who Jesus is. And actually, it's this claim of verse 1, it's this claim that got Jesus killed. The Jews handed him over to Rome to be crucified because by the end of his ministry, it had become clear to them that Christ was, in fact, claiming to be the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. That's what Christ means in Greek, the Anointed One, who was, in fact, the very Son of God. And they said, no, blasphemy. And they handed him over to Rome to be crucified. So make no mistake, Jesus 
We cannot say that Jesus was merely a good man. Some people want to say, you know, he's just a, a great first century guy, an influential uh, teacher of, of morals and ethics. He had high ethical values, sort of like Buddha or Confucius. But here, it's, it's plain. Jesus' followers did not believe that that is all Jesus claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the king, and not just any king, but the king who was prophesied to rule over the entire earth. So ultimately, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. They killed him for this claim, and Jesus' disciples would go on themselves to be martyred for this very same claim. Somehow or other, they continued after Christ's crucifixion. They had the courage and the motivation to go on proclaiming that, yes, in fact, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We see why at the very end of Mark's gospel. Mark leaves us on this incredible cliffhanger at the end of his gospel. On Friday, as he uh, records, first there's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Saturday is the Sabbath. Uh, where the Jews are, are not doing anything according to law, the, the Mosaic law. And then comes Sunday morning, and three women, they go to the tomb to anoint Jesus. And they're asking themselves, you know, there's this huge stone. How are we going to roll away this stone? But when they get there, they find that the stone is already rolled away. And then here's what we read, starting in uh, verse 5 of chapter 16. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's how Mark's gospel ends, with that line right there. And Mark's gospel is designed, it forces us to ask the question, who is this man? Did he really live this life recorded here in Mark's gospel? Did he really die? And then did he really rise from the grave? Is he, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God? And really, this is the question that is put to us by all of the Gospels. Who is Jesus? And if he is who he claimed to be, what does it mean for us to live in light of that? How should we respond to the person and proclamation of Jesus? And so that's our simple outline this morning as we begin, who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? That's what I want us to look at uh, in these next few minutes. So firstly then, who is Jesus here according to the opening lines of Mark's gospel? And here in verses one through three, we get these two titles uh, and then we get a text from the prophet Isaiah. And what I want to do is we're going to begin with that Isaiah text, and then we're going to see how it informs those two titles, because here's how Mark explains the titles. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So let's look at this Isaiah text. Firstly, the Isaiah text is actually 
a smashing together of two Old Testament texts. One of them is Malachi 3, and then the other is Isaiah 40. And now, Mark simply attributes this to Isaiah because, first of all, both prophets are speaking to the same event. But secondly, Isaiah is the prophet who first prophesies about this coming of the Lord. And secondly, uh, he speaks much more extensively about this event. Isaiah speaks much about what we're about to read. And so Malachi is simply reiterating something of that same prophecy. So the event is two parts. Simply, it's the coming of the Lord, and then it's the coming of his messenger who prepares the way. So here's the prophecy as it's found in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in Isaiah's prophecy, the voice in the wilderness is very clear about who's coming. And it's God himself. Prepare the way of Yahweh is what the text says. It's the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew characters that would be used to spell the holy name of God. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so not surprisingly, we see the same thing in Malachi's prophecy. In chapter 3, verse 1, again, this is what Mark is quoting from. And this is God talking in Malachi. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So again, there's this messenger preparing the way before God, and now what Mark does is he looks at these prophecies of this messenger and of God himself coming, and he says, in Jesus, they are fulfilled. And this is very significant. We need to grasp something about how significant this is for us as Christians, for those who make this profession of Christ as Lord, because here in Mark's gospel, the earliest of the four gospels, we see Mark making the claim in his opening lines that Christ is, in fact, God himself who became a man. Not by losing his divinity, Mark's point is that the coming of Jesus of Nazareth is the very coming of God. And what this does, this completely debunks what some critics of Christianity want to say. Some people want to say that Jesus' divinity, you know, that's a later invention. You know, that's Paul's invention. He, you know, had this experience with Christ on the road to Damascus. He thought Jesus was speaking to him. And that's the birth of the divinity of Christ. And one particular critic, Bart Ehrman, he wants to say that, you know, Christians first believe that Jesus was divinized when he ascended into heaven or at his resurrection. But then actually, after that, Christians then came to believe that actually he was divinized at his baptism when Jesus says, you are my son and you I am well pleased. And he says, you know, no, then the idea of Christ's divinity progressed from there to say, no, he was divine at his birth. And then, no, it progressed from there to John's gospel where, no, he is the eternal word of God who was with the Father in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there's, there's this line of thought. This is what those of you who are going off to college, or maybe I guess you're listening online now if you're tuning in, all of our college students have just left, but this is what our kids are getting. This is what you're going to hear from your coworkers. This is the books they're reading 
Jesus Christ was made divine later by his disciples, but the earliest disciples didn't believe that. Well, what we see here in Mark is that that is entirely mistaken. There is no incongruity between Mark and then between Matthew and Luke that came a little later, and then between John's gospel. The very first thing that Christians wrote was that Jesus was Yahweh himself. And significantly, also the very first words here, demonstrate that Jesus is also distinct from the Father. We have this title, even as Jesus is being called God, that the the prophecy of Yahweh coming is fulfilled in Jesus. He's also being called the Son of God. So we have two fundamental tenets of the Christian faith present from the very beginning, that Jesus is not only man but God, and yet that Jesus is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. The gospel from the very beginning has involved a triune God. God the Father sent His Son Jesus that He might die and be the propitiation for our sins, that Jesus might appease the wrath of God. Not as a mere man. If Jesus lived a perfect life but was only a mere man, He could only atone for the sins of one other person. Right? A one-for-one scenario, one-for-one substitution. But Jesus is divine meaning that his life has infinite value. That is why we believe that the death of one man atones for the sins of many. It's because of his being God himself. So that's the first thing I I, want to point out to us, is that we can't say the earliest Christians didn't believe that Jesus was divine. So let's then take this that we've seen from Isaiah's prophecy. And with that in mind, I want to consider these titles. And we're going sort of backwards here. I want to consider the title, the Son of God first, and then what it means that Jesus is the Christ. So firstly, the Son of God. Now, in our day, this is sort of an apologetic sermon, okay? One thing you got to realize about the Gospels is that Mark is going to unfold the meaning of these titles throughout the entirety of his gospel. Okay, so when he says Son of God, he doesn't explain it here in the first few verses in detail. So I'm using this sermon to say, what is the significance that this is how he opens the gospel? From the very beginning, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, in our day, there's been two attempts to water down what it means that Christians believe or that Christ claimed to be the Son of God. Sometime back, I think it was this spring, I was on a ferry ride. I'm sorry if I've already mentioned this story, but I was on a ferry ride and I ran into two people and we got talking. They found out I was training for for ministry and they introduced to me their own beliefs, which was this philosophy, this sort of new age spirituality called science of mind. And science of mind shares a lot in common with various forms of this sort of spirituality in wanting to divinize all humanity. So they recommended this book by Richard Rohr, and Richard Rohr wrote this book called The Universal Christ. And the idea behind The Universal Christ is that, look, Jesus was just a guy like the rest of us. We all have that divine spark in us. The difference with Jesus, though, is that he recognized his intimacy with the Father. He recognized that he was God. 
And actually, the first incarnation of Christ was at creation. Richard Rohr goes on to say that, you know, the incarnation happens even in blades of grass. Everything is an incarnation of Christ. The matter is just whether we recognize it or not. All of us, the the aim of this has been to say, look, we're all sons of God in the same way as Jesus was. So that's, that's one way to attempt to downplay the claims being made by Jesus. But again, what does Mark say? This is the Son of God just as it is written in Isaiah when he speaks about God himself coming. This notion that we're all sons of God in the same way as Christ is completely misled. You have to rewrite the Gospels. You have to rewrite the Christian Scriptures. Another instance of this comes, I think I just mentioned, the New Testament Gospels critic and really enemy of Christianity is Bart Ehrman. He wants to say that, look, you know, in the ancient world, this claim to be the Son of God, it was all over the place. This is common. Jesus isn't unique. Christianity and Christ claims, this is just one of many attempts. Now, his parallels, though, they don't measure up to the stature of what we see in the Gospels. One of his parallels is Romulus. It's debated whether he was a real figure. Maybe he was the mythical founder of Rome. Maybe he was the real founder of Rome. But Romulus was said to be the founder of Rome. And the story with Romulus is that he and his brother Remus were raised by a she-wolf. Okay, that they suckled at the breasts of a she-wolf after they were orphaned. The first thing written on Romulus comes 500 years after the founding of Rome and after when he was claimed to have lived. It's of a very mythical nature from the beginning, very different than the kind of literature that we see here in the Gospels. Another example that he gives is Julius Caesar, who was the first Roman emperor, and he claimed that he was God. And then so from there on out, his, starting with his son Caesar Augustus, and then uh, various emperors down on the line, apparently, according to Ehrman, the Senate would vote on whether this emperor was good enough to be qualified as a divine individual after they died. So that, too, is very different from what you see in the Gospels. And thirdly, he mentions Hercules. Now, Hercules is said to be the son of Jupiter who comes down and has intercourse with a human woman. And Hercules is the divine offspring. And all of these examples, they are entirely different than the account we see here in the Gospels. This isn't mythical. There's a biographical, there's a real sense that these events took place. Even Simon of Cyrene is mentioned later in Mark's Gospel. And not only Simon, Simon was the one who helped carry Jesus' cross up the hill when he couldn't do it on his own, but Simon's sons are mentioned. People are called out by name in the Gospels. The idea is you could actually go, this was written sometime in the early to mid-50s, you could actually go and talk to these people and verify, first of all, whether they existed, but secondly, hey, you know, did it actually go down this way? Did it happen? So there's this historical character to it, and there's no notion of this divine human sexual interplay. What I'm saying is that Jesus is claimed to be the Son of God. He's not one among many. He's saying the Jews believe that there is only one God over heaven and earth, that all the other gods were false gods. They were idols. And Jesus says, I am that one God. That is the claim that we have in the Gospels. 
That's what's being made of the Son of God title by Christians, by Christ himself, in fact. Now I want to move us back one step to this title, Christ. Okay, Christ, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the Greek, Christ simply means the anointed one. And it's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach, which also just means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, significant figures whom God called to himself for a specific purposes were anointed with God's spirit for the fulfillment of those tasks, such as the priests and the kings. These people would be anointed and installed in office. And the anointed one, ever since God's promise to King David, God promised and made a covenant to David that someday his son would rule on an eternal throne and a throne that covered the entire earth. So ever since the Jews were deposed from their land and then they came back and all of a sudden there's Roman rule, they have been looking for this Messiah, this anointed one, who would usher in this everlasting kingdom that wasn't this temporary and local thing, but was this everlasting and global thing. So listen to what Jesus says later in this same gospel. In chapter 12, starting in verse 35, we read, And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus' point is that, look, David is, is in a vision from God's Spirit seeing the Lord in heaven speak to someone else whom David calls Lord. And Jesus' point is that, look, if this descendant of David is just a human figure, David isn't going to call him Lord. This human descendant of David is clearly, even in the Old Testament Scriptures, going to be someone who is much more than a a mere man. And this is made even more clear In Jesus' trial, before the the Sanhedrin, the high priest asks him on the night that he was betrayed, the high priest is interrogating him and he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's when he is accused of blasphemy. Because they know, then it's clear what Jesus is claiming. He was claiming to be the Son of Man figure of Daniel 7. And that figure is given dominion over all things. And that figure has a divine power. And yet, somehow, is distinct from the one seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days. So Jesus, in his own ministry, is claiming this divine identity and yet claiming to find in the Old Testament this notion that the Christ, the son of David, would occupy the throne in a way that no human could do. Now, this is also a great encouragement to us, if you will, that that our faith, we need to recognize our faith is not an invention of the disciples of Christ. In Jesus' own preaching, he's reaching back to all these Old Testament 
text and saying, yes, they point to me and they point to a coming one who would be more than just a man and I am that one. Jesus shows us that the gospel is foretold in advance. Uh, and I want to just say that if, if that's true, this is exactly what we should expect to see. If it's true that Jesus is the Christ, Christians should be able to look at the Old Testament and find there hints of his coming. As Christians, I think one of our tasks is to, to know, to learn about how the Old Testament if you pick up any book in the Old Testament, you can see how, in some way or other, sometimes a more shadowy way, sometimes a clearer way, it is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, the gospel is in accordance with the scriptures. This isn't an out-of-the-blue invention, but the Christian faith is the faith of the fathers of old. Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and then Israel after that, all of these promises pointed forward to the coming of Christ. So Jesus is the Son of God and God Himself who came for our salvation. That's the who. Who is Jesus? And now uh, I want to see what it means for us to respond to Jesus. How should we respond to Christ's coming? The answer we see here in Mark's gospel is that we should repent. Repentance is how we ought to respond. When a close friend comes to your house, you might tidy up, you might make a nice meal, relax and enjoy yourselves, have a good time. When a debt collector comes to your house and you've got massive debt and they're coming to repossess your home or something like this, something drastic, the only thing you can do is plead for mercy. And here the picture is something more of this second one, only it's far more serious than that even because this isn't just a debt collector, but this is a holy God coming to a sinful people. But what we see here in the Gospels once again is that God is not just holy and righteous and just, but he is merciful and gracious. So when he comes, he doesn't show up out of the blue and start meeting out judgment, but actually it's just the opposite. Before that great day of judgment that we read of in, in Malachi 4, God wants his people to be prepared. He prepared the Jews in Jesus' day, and he does the same thing today. Scripture is clear that that prophecy of Malachi will one day be fulfilled in full in Christ's second coming. One day God will come and will judge all evil. He will judge all evildoers. But before that day, God has given to his apostles and then to his church the message of repentance, the message of reconciliation, that's what we ourselves have trusted in, and that is what we take now to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. Scripture says in 2 Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so John's message and what God is still calling the world to today 
In some ways, we're still in this place of preparation for Christ's coming. And the message is, repent. Turn. That's what repentance means. Turn from your sin. Turn from living as you believe you ought to believe. Turn from your own moral code and ethic. Turn from being king of your own life. And turn to Jesus, who is the king of all. So before God comes, that's the message. He sends John the Baptist here in the opening verses of Mark. And here's the scene. Firstly, John is preaching in the wilderness. Secondly, he's baptizing in the Jordan. And thirdly, Mark notes what he's wearing. In verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, now all of that may seem pretty bizarre to us 21st century readers, like this guy is clearly off his rocker, right? Who let this man out? And how is he so wildly popular? All of the people of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, Mark writes. All right, so what is Mark's secret, right? Are there door prizes? What is he doing to get people out to the wilderness? And it seems foreign to us, but I don't think it actually would have been foreign to the first century Jews because John was clearly taking up a prophetic mantle. And not just any prophetic mantle, but the one spoken of in Isaiah and Malachi's prophecy. So in Isaiah, again, what do we read? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And where is John? In verse 4, in the wilderness. And then in Malachi, the Lord's coming messenger, as we read, is likened to one of the prophets of old, this prophet Elijah. And this is where this comment about John's clothing comes in. So any time you see clothing mentioned in Scripture, it's significant. Because most of the time, clothing is, is completely irrelevant to the story of redemption, except when it's relevant. <laughs> and so in 2 Kings 1, here's what we read of Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And again, I'll, I'll read of John here in Mark. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. So John is clearly this messenger who comes before God himself to prepare his way. And in verse 7, uh, we read, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is clearly not the main event. The main event is what comes after John, and that's what he's preparing the people for. And again, the way of preparation we see here is repentance. So what does it look like then for us to repent? Well, in verse 5, we read that people were confessing their sins. So central to repentance is this acknowledgement that I have done wrong and I stand in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. And here in many ways we come to where the Bible's message clashes hardest with the human heart. First of all, no one likes being told that they're wrong and not only wrong but guilty. But secondly, this especially flies in the face of 
the current worldview, right? In our time and place, in the secular West, which says that no one is guilty, right? You can't really blame people for their bad choices because we're all simply products of our environment, right? It's all biology. It's all action and reaction. We're all just a a chemical makeup and you know, you can't blame us. It's my upbringing. It's my DNA. So if we've made bad choices, look, we've been led to those bad choices, and we we simply couldn't help it. This is the therapeutic worldview. We're all just really victims. If anyone's done wrong, in the end, you can't really blame them. Now, I think where this falls apart is when we look into our own hearts, Right? We all know that inner dialogue, right? That, that sort of, I wish this doesn't get found out. Or what if such and such a person knew this about me? Imagine if our hearts were put on display for all to see. I think we all would be a little bit embarrassed, right? We would all prepare ourselves to be a little bit ashamed. Because are our hearts really pure and blameless? and our desires, and our motivations, right? How would others judge them? Of course, what matters most is the question, how is God going to judge our hearts? And so repentance is about the confession of sin, but then true confession requires that we understand something of the holiness of God. When the Jews repented, when they confessed their sins, they didn't confess simply, you know, according to their own moral ethic, but they looked at the perfect law of God. They looked at God's perfect standard of righteousness, the standard of being a perfect truth teller, the standard of being a perfect servant of others, of always having pure motives, the standard of praying for your enemies and blessing those who curse you. And I think deep down in our hearts, we all know that, you know, measured up against God's law, measured up against the standard of perfection, we'd fall so far short. Ultimately, none of us belongs in God's blessed kingdom. Of course, the good news, the good news is that God sends The messenger, God, invites us anyways, and he invites us to enter by starting with repentance. When John begins preaching, God is inviting his people once again through the wilderness, through the river Jordan, and into the promised land, so to speak. I think that's the deeper layer of significance of the setting here. The wilderness, historically, is the place where God's people repent And it's by going down into and then up out of the Jordan River that the people enter the place of promise. So God is calling his people to himself once again. God wants us to receive the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus. And this is what John's baptism is about. It's a chance to do that. Heartfelt confession of sin, which starts with understanding the holiness of God. That is what each of us needs. If we have not reckoned with our own sin and really fallen on our knees before God, that is the first thing that we need to do. On this side of Christ's coming, we see that those who turn to Jesus receive not only John's symbolic 
cleansing through baptism, but the Holy Spirit. And this is where I want to end. John the Baptist said, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now what this means is that those who believe in Jesus, right, we won't only get this symbolic cleansing, but we will be given new and eternal life. And this life will be Christ himself dwelling in us by his Spirit. Later in Mark's uh, gospel, James and John, they selfishly ask Christ, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And the other disciples hear about it and they're all in this scuffle. They get upset. And so Jesus calls them to himself and listen to what he says. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The amazing good news of the gospel is that what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God is not what it meant for the emperor to be the Son of God. It wasn't a selfish tool of propaganda, but Jesus, the Lord of the universe, humbles himself by becoming one of us that he might die for us. That is ultimately where Mark is headed from the very beginning. Jesus is the Christ who comes not first to take his throne, but to be enthroned upon the cross. If that is not your hope, again, I just want to say, please take hold of that. Read Mark's gospel. Continue in this narrative. We're not going to be in it in the coming weeks, but take hold of Mark's gospel. Open one of the other gospels and read about who it is, who this Jesus claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so merciful and gracious, Lord, that though our sins are many, though your law is perfect, and though we have transgressed it in so many ways, Lord, you yourself have come in the person of the Lord Jesus. That you, Jesus, have offered your own life that we might be cleansed. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning with that news, that we would trust in it and that we would rest in it, that we would rejoice in it this day. God, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.